This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley and is part four of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. About five years ago, I was at an event where a lot of people were milling around and there was a photographer that was milling around with her camera and she was trying to get some candid shots and she, um, she called out in my vicinity. She said, hey, you two bald guys, would you mind standing next to each other? And I'm looking around, I'm going, that's a bald guy for sure. Must be talking about that guy. Thinking, where's the other bald guy? And I'm like, you, me? Do you mean me? She said, yeah, bald guy. Stand next to that other bald guy. And I'm like, so offended. How dare you call me a bald guy? That's so harsh. And I'm not bald. I just have a receding hairline. So a couple months later, I'm getting my hair cut, and you know how they sometimes hold up the mirror to the back of your head to check it out, and so I could see the back of my head for the first time in a long time, because I normally don't look at the back of my head, and I see the back of my head, and I realize there's a lot of hair missing back there. I still wouldn't call myself bald, but I'm approaching baldness. Now, I mention this story because it is so easy and so human, and part of our fallen sinful condition is we cannot see the truth of ourselves. So we are so easily susceptible to prideful self-deception. There's a, social scientists have researched this. They have a name for this. They call it, the, um, they call it illusory superiority. It just means that we tend to think we're better than we actually are. There's an opposite problem when we can't see our good qualities, when we have low self-esteem. That's also a problem. But this morning I want to talk about this problem of illusory superiority because it's a problem that doesn't get a lot of attention and press. I was talking to one guy after the service. He said, I am not guilty of illusory superiority like all those other people are, but he said, If I was, I would be really good at it. So there's been a lot of research about this. So for instance, high school students, they asked a bunch of high school students, how would you rank yourself in terms of getting along with your peers? 25% of them, well, 60% of them said they were really good, above average. 25% of them said that they were in the top 1%. Now, you know that's impossible. Only the 1% can be in the top 1%. 83% of us, according to another survey, think we're much better drivers than those other idiots out there on the road. So you see how this goes. It becomes part of our life. I think of the line in the, the movie, A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. Well, that is us. That's me. That's you. We really can't handle the truth. One thing that social science research shows is that we're proud. We have illusory superiority. Well, our scripture reading this morning, the first one you heard from the very sort of under-preached little tiny book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the entire Old Testament, is a case study in self-deception. It's a judgment oracle, is what it's called, against the nation of Edom. Now, when I first 
got this assignment and said, this is a judgment oracle against the nation of Edom, I thought, oh, great. People are going to be thinking, look, my marriage is struggling. I have problems with my kids. My job is, is, a, is a challenge. And I'm going to hear a judgment oracle on the nation of Edom. Well, all of Scripture is given to us for a reason. And as we get into this, I think you're going to see with me, I hope, that this is a practical book. That this is a book about how to face and overcome our prideful self-deception. A little historical background is really important to this, so we know what's going on here in this story, because this is real historical events. So as you start reading the Bible, you start at the very beginning, you get to the 12th chapter of Genesis, you meet a couple named Abraham and Sarah. They have a son named Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca have twin sons, Esau and Jacob. The children of Esau become the nation of Edom. The chosen children of Jacob become the nation of Israel. Jacob, or, uh, Jacob, and, Jacob and Esau started fighting as they're coming out of the womb, started jockeying for position. Their whole life is filled with conflict. Their descendants are filled with conflict. So the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel are always, are for, for hundreds of years, they're almost always in a conflict, just getting out of a conflict or getting ready to go into a conflict. They're always fighting. Well, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a historical event that for Israel's side of the relationship pushed that relationship over the edge and shattered it and broke the relationship. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But for now, I want us to look at this as a case study of prideful self-deception. And just to organize the, the flow of the book, and there is a flow here, I want to talk about the problem of self-deception, the judgment on self-deception, and freedom from self-deception. The problem of self-deception, God's judgment on self-deception, and freedom from self-deception. First, the problem of self-deception. There's a great little, here, here's, here's what it looks like. Verse 3 in Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This is God talking to the nation of Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Literally, it has puffed you up. It has inflated you. You're, you have a really bad case of illusory superiority. You've become like a, you ever seen a puffer fish? They're small, and then they kind of puff themselves up to look bigger. It's still the same fish, but they just look twice the size. That's what you've done. It's deceived you into thinking you're somebody more powerful, more moral, uh, more spiritual than the people around you. And they live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? They literally did live up in the mountains in uh, virtually an impenetrable, invulnerable fortress up in the mountains, up in the clefts of the rock. The eagles could get up there, but it was really almost impossible for an enemy to get up there. So they lived up there and they said, who's going to bring us down? Who will bring me down to the ground? See, that's the problem with self-deception. When we're self-deceived, we're always looking down, looking down on people. We're looking down on different ethnic groups. 
We're looking down on morally inferior people. We're never looking up to the Lord. We're never comparing ourselves to God's holiness or God's majesty. It's always, I can compare myself to those people. I'm a lot better than that. The problem with self-deception is we think we're going up when we're really going down. We think we're invulnerable when we're really very vulnerable. We think we're spiritually competent when in reality we will never, ever get over the one of the most ancient prayers of the church, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. We will never graduate out of that, but when we're self-deceived, we think, I've kind of moved beyond that. I want something deeper in my spiritual life. It's a great example, contemporary example. A study in self-deception actually comes from a novel by a woman named Elizabeth Strout. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel called Olive Kitteridge. And Olive Kitteridge is this retired school teacher who's lived in the same town for a long time. She knows a lot of people in this small town, and she's hurt and wounded a lot of people, but she's absolutely oblivious to it. She does some good things, too, and she has some really good qualities, but she's completely self-deceived about how she's relating to people. So one time, her son tells her, Mom, you can make people feel terrible doesn't sink in at all. A friend of hers, a woman that's known her a long time, says, Olive had a way about her that was absolutely without apology. At one point, her husband tells her, he says, you know, Ollie, in all the years we've been married, all the years, I don't believe you've once ever apologized for anything. She responds with defensiveness, and sarcasm, well, sorry, sorry, sorry. I am sorry I'm such a rotten wife. By the way, that's not an apology. It's not how to apologize. Olive is somebody that is self-deceived. And when we're self-deceived, we live in this bubble. We're not pierceable by the truth. We can't handle the truth because it would break us, it would shatter us. And this self-deception is not only just individually, something that I struggle with, something you struggle with, it can get into groups. It could get into a church. It could get into a nation that's self-deceived. Edom was one of those nations. So there's a problem. So you can understand why the next point makes sense, God's judgment on self-deceptive pride. Let me give you some background, a little more background. So in around 586, Babylon, the superpower of the day, the reigning superpower, swept into the capital city of Jerusalem. This is the nation of Israel now, the descendants of Jacob, swept in. In the midst of the chaos as families were fleeing and buildings were burning and people were getting killed and all this chaos of war as the city was being sacked, Edom showed up. Not to help, but to watch and to gloat. So it says in verse 11, on that day, on the, on the day you stood aloof, talking about this historical event, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You were as bad as the Babylonians. 
You didn't attack the city, but you stood aloof. You didn't lift a finger to help. And you thought you were doing something good. And then notice verses 12 through 14. There's this rhythm of eight do nots. Do not gloat. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their room. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the temple of my people. Do not gloat over his disaster. Do not loot his wealth. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Do not, do not, do not do that. The word for gloat literally means to look down on. Do not look down on them and their misfortune. The first time I read that, I thought, man, those Edomites, they are horrible people. They really deserved what they had coming. You know, Edomite, Edom doesn't exist on a, as a nation. You ever been to an Edomite restaurant lately? You know, they just, it doesn't exist. So it's easy to think, yeah, they got it. But then I think, what about me? What about us? What about the United States of America? When have we stood aloof? When have we rejoiced when others, bad things happen to other people? When have we taken pleasure in the downfall of people we don't like? When have I done that? I'm incredibly open to being guilty of that. Verse 14, it got even worse though. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. As the refugees were fleeing the city, as they're fleeing for their lives, you can imagine maybe a, a mother with her child, maybe the, the men are trying to fight and trying to defend the city, and, and, and in those days you could easily see the mother and the children trying to get out, holding a child in tow, they're trying to flee the city. And as they're fleeing, the people of Edom who were standing around watching, like it was a soccer match, they're standing around, hey, you who? There's an escapee over here playing Texas Ranger. Round him up. No wonder the judgment of God fell. They not only stood aloof, but they collaborated. That's a story of how it's not supposed to work. Let me tell you a positive story. Because a positive story will show us this is how they could have done it. This is how Christians could respond. This is a contemporary story. So uh, my friend Damon works with refugees around the world, works with World Relief, one of the organizations we partner with. He was in Lebanon. He was talking to a pastor there. I can't use his name for security reasons. I'll just call him Pastor John. And uh, Pastor John was in Lebanon. He was working with Muslim Syrian refugees. It's a, it's a tough group. And, and by the way, I'm not making any kind of political statement here. I'm just making a biblical statement about our response as Christians. So, Pastor John, this is basically how his church got started. There was a, a, a Muslim gang of Syrian youth, basically uh, what we would call thugs. Not terrorists, but just not nice people. Not very safe people either. They called him and they said, um, we, wanna, we need to meet with you. We want to talk to you about Jesus. We're interested. We're curious. I'm not sure what I would have done in that situation, but he went and he met with them. Four of these young men came to faith in Christ. It became the 
impetus to start the church. Now they have a church that, according to Pastor John, is just like, just like us, is built on prayer and fasting, he said. He said, our church is built on prayer and fasting. That's a phrase you will hear Bishop Stewart use all the time. Resurrection is built on prayer and fasting. Now they have 450 people in their services. They're reaching out to children. People are coming to Christ. Families are coming to Christ. Because he did not stand aloof. He got engaged. He got involved. So you can understand, when you look at a good example, how bad this bad example looks. That's why God says in verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, Edom. I will bring you down. It's like a thief has been chased up in the tree and the, the police are on the bottom. And they go, look, you got two choices. You can come down or we're going to shake that tree and we're going to make you come down. That's basically what God says in our prideful self-deception. Notice this, though. Because we've been talking about judgment on Edom, but notice this, because the, the, book, the book is really, it's designed from a literary standpoint, it's, it's really brilliant. So all the first 14 verses are about Edom. Edom, they're the bad guys. Edom did this. Edom did that. Edom didn't do this. And then verse 15, all of a sudden it, it switches. And it says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is not just about Edom anymore. This is about all nations. This is about any nation that descends into prideful self-deception. This is about us when we descend into prideful self-deception. Obadiah talks about the day of the Lord. That's a phrase that's really important in the Minor Prophets because it appears over and over again. The day of the Lord is a, is a phrase that means the day when God will judge the world with perfect justice and perfect fairness, when all the wrongs of the world will be righted, when all the violence will be turned into peace, when all, the, when all our heartaches and tears will become joy, when everyone will be held accountable, when our secrets will be laid bare, and when self-deceptive pride will be lopped off like trees cut down. That's the day of the Lord. And Obadiah is saying that is coming not just for the nation of Edom. They're just a case study. That's coming for all the nations of the earth. Now, we might hope God's going to be nice. He's going to grade on a curve. I might make it. I mean, I'm better than a lot of those people, so I'm going to make it. I'll be on the good side. I might get a D minus, but I'm going to pass. Well, God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not how God grades the New Testament says, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a judgment. There's a judgment upon our self-deceptive pride. Where's the good news? Freedom from self-deception. Father Stephen, one of the lessons I've learned from Father Stephen here is that Father Stephen says every book of the Bible, every passage of the Bible, and therefore every sermon should ultimately be about hope. No matter how hard it is, no matter how convicting it is, no matter how, um, just how much bad news there is, it should always ultimately be about hope. I love that. Verse 17, notice this. 
So all this judgment, the day of the Lord, all this self-deceptive human pride, then all of a sudden, verse 17, but in Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is a symbol for the presence of the Lord. It's not just a place, but it's a symbol for where God shows up in his mercy and saving power. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. When you're reading the book of Obadiah, and you just kind of this heavy bad news, and you come to verse 17, it just poof, just explodes with good news, explodes with light, explodes with hope. Because that's what God always does. God is a redeeming God. God is a God of salvation. Houdini was the master escape artist. He was a master of getting out of incredibly difficult situations. But he only did that for himself. He didn't save anybody else. Jesus Christ is the master escape artist of life. He set other people free. Verse 19 and 20 of Obadiah, so we're getting more into the good news. Verses 19 and 20 talks about these exiles, these refugees that had left the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians had attacked. They've been in exile. They're going to come back home. Now, humanly speaking, for them to get back home would take a miracle. It was impossible. There was no way that these exiles could make it back home. They were nobodies. They had no money. They had no power. They had no influence. They had no network. They had nothing to offer to get them back. But God says, I am going to do it. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to bring the exiles back home. Imagine. Imagine I, I had a little picture of the the mother and her child leaving the city, fleeing in terror with tears. Now they're coming back. These families are coming back again with tears, but this time tears of joy because God opened a way to bring them back. Now let me just say, in this book, there's even hope for the Edomites. So we always get, we get sermon feedback in between the services. Father Stephen gave me some great feedback. He said, don't forget to say that there wasn't just hope for Israel in this. There was hope for Edom in this. Because Israel went through this time of judgment, and the Lord saved them and restored them by his power and by his grace. Edom could look at that and say, well, God did it for them. When I trust in the living God, he can do that for me. He can save me no matter how far I've fallen, no matter how much I get off track. He can save me. I love that. You know, the story of the exiles coming home, the story of these, these fugitives, these refugees, these exiles coming home, it's a great story, but it, it took place in a particular time and a particular place and long ago for a particular group of people. But it foreshadows another story in the Bible, an even better story, a bigger story, a more hopeful story. It's the story of Jesus. Spiritually speaking, if you're a Christian today, spiritually speaking, you were in exile. You, you had no chance of getting in. You were cut off from the Father's house. And yet God found a way to bring us home. We couldn't buy our way in. We couldn't do it with our own intellect. We couldn't do it with our own power. We couldn't do it with our own money. It had to be a free gift. And that's the story of the gospel, that Jesus Christ intervened. He came to us. He saved us. He brought us home when we were a long way off. And I want us to see that that is the perfect antidote
to self-deceptive pride. The gospel, the gospel explodes self-deceptive pride that we can all be so guilty of. I mean, how can you, how can I be self-righteous when I know that Christ died for me while I was yet a sinner and I wasn't looking for it? How can I stand aloof for the poor, for the refugee, for the forgotten, for the lost, for the unborn, for those who find themselves just far from the Father's house? How can I stand aloof when Jesus came to search for me? He wasn't aloof. He came after us. How could I refuse to confess my sins and repent of my sin when I know that he is waiting for me. And I think of Olive Kitteridge. Let's go back to Olive. You know, just to, I imagine a different scenario with Olive. And if rewrite, maybe another chapter. She gets saved. She meets Jesus. She knows how much she's loved. And she gets confronted with the things in her life. And she doesn't have to hang her head in shame because she knows how much she's loved. She knows how much Christ loved her. She knows that her sins are forgiven. And she can say, you know, you're right. I, do, I can hurt people. I have hurt people. I have these sinful habits. You're right. I'm sorry. And I, I repent. And I ask your forgiveness. What an amazing way to respond. What an amazing way to live life. Let me just close with two things. For all of us. When you see, when I see self-deceptive pride, when you're finally made aware of it, and, and by the way, let me, let me, I'll say a third thing, and then I'll say my two things. So I'll say the third thing first. So the third thing is, that's why we need, we need the church. We need scripture. We need to be in worship. We need to be in fellowship. We need Christians and spiritual leaders who know us. We need to be in God's word. We need friends who will lovingly tell us the truth. Because otherwise, we can't see it. But once we see it, once we see it, two things. First, repent. Repent before the Lord and say, Lord, I did. I sinned against you, and I've sinned against other people. I've stood aloof when I should have been engaged. I have not cared. I've been indifferent about issues or problems or people when at least I should care. I repent. And then the second thing is run to Jesus. Run to the cross. Do not be ashamed. Do not let your sin or your shame or your sense of condemnation prevent you from coming to Jesus Christ and receiving his forgiveness. Yeah, we all have self-deceptive pride, but there's a way out. There's a way of escape. Repent and flee to Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.